Hey, it's me, Mark. Before we get started with this podcast episode, I've got some news. On June 16, 2022, we're hosting our first in-person public training session. It has this incredible name. It's called the Sweathead Strategy Workshop. How did you come up with that name? Can't tell you. You'll have to come to the day. Basically, you bring a brand and you leave with a strategy. You might be working on your own brand. You might have a brand you want to bring that's a client brand. You might be working in-house. Bring it. Or you can choose one that I'll give you and I'll run you through a whole bunch of strategy exercises, identifying problems, working out what insights are, understanding how lateral thinking works, looking at different ways you can write strategy. And through this day, you will create two to three versions of the four points, that little framework that I like to use, a strategy story on a page, a creative brief, and even a simple brand on a page. It's going to be fun. It's going to be practical. You're going to get lunch. You can find out details at sweathead.com. June 16, 2022. First in-person public training. Don't miss it. The Sweathead Strategy Workshop. That name, oh my gosh, that's incredible. See you there. What's up and welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. We have Rodolfo Estrada today. Rodolfo is a planner at BBDO in Guatemala. We're going to talk about some of his thinking in response to a brief from the Sweathead Strategy Accelerator. The brief deals with a brand called Vivitrol, which affects the opioid receptors in the brain and can help people with substance usage disorder, such as opioids and potentially even alcohol. If you're interested in strategy training, check out sweathead.com. We've got a ton of events, some of which are free. We've got a masterclass happening in person in June in New York. We'll do a second six-week accelerator later this year. We'll have the Sweathead Do Together conference, probably in person, maybe also online later this year as well. We have a ton of stuff going on. You can go to sweathead.com to find out about it. There you go. That's my capitalism right there. Rodolfo, BBDO, planning Guatemala. For some reason, that feels a little surprising to me, and I don't mean that in a patronizing way. If anything, it points out my own ignorance. What is going on with planning in Guatemala? It's a pretty small country, and specifically, what is BBDO doing in Guatemala? I think you mean that you didn't think there was a lot of strategy in Guatemala. It's actually relatively new. My current CSO, he was a creative director for a while, and he moved in planning, opened actually the planning department. Kind of strange that I was able to find strategy here. I'm super happy about it. And we're doing some incredible stuff. That's awesome. We get to work with brands like Doritos and Lay's and a lot of the PepsiCo brands. So yeah, I'm pretty happy about it. I'm going to test my geography. I hope I get this right. Guatemala, just south of Mexico, near Nicaragua, Honduras, Costa Rica, before Colombia, right? Central America. Yes. Colombia is way far south, but you were right south of Mexico, like right south of Mexico. Yeah. What are some of the common misperceptions that people might have about Guatemala, assuming they know anything about it? Possibly the same misconceptions people have about other Central American countries, that it's very rural. It's really not. The city is vibrant. It's booming. And advertising is a big part of society. So, yeah. These countries are portrayed to most people as, uh, at least for decades, as being very violent countries, right? Is that a reasonable perception? Is it a misperception? No, that is a reality. It's definitely changing. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of change in that respect. I know for a long time, people would uh, buy second phones because they knew that at some point your phone would be taken. So those things did exist but those things are changing now and I for the better, luckily. But yes, it's still somewhat dangerous. BBDO, massive. What does BBDO do in Guatemala? So we mostly look at actually some of the really, really big brands in Guatemala. Some of the ones you can possibly call love marks. There's this fast food chain. I don't know if you've heard of it called Boyo Campero. It's a fried chicken uh, place and it's huge here. It's everything. 
And so we work on a brand called Pollo Campero. Their conglomerate owns a lot of other small brands like pasta brands and things like that. We also work on PepsiCo foods. Mm -hmm. So it's really fun to be able to bounce back and forth with that, especially brands like Doritos who have like a, this mantra of being something bold. And so we get to, on our time off, well, I say time off, like time off when we don't have a lot of briefs, we get to come up with exciting things to do for these brands. And that's also really fun. proactive thinking. Population of Guatemala, please. 15 million. What? I wouldn't yeah. have guessed 15. I thought it was smaller. Oh, that's like pretty big. That's bigger than a lot of European countries. Don't know why I'm comparing it with that. But hey, there we go. We all have biases. How many planners would there be in Guatemala? In BBDO, we are three. I've met four others. I think we had this conversation with my CSO and he said, maybe there are 10. How many people are in BBDO in Guatemala? Is it 100? Is it 10? Is it 500? I think it's in the 100 range. Okay. I've been fortunate enough to travel, but to also meet people from all parts of the world. And it always blows me away that the country you go into, the city that you go into is never like a lot of the media portrays it. And in all of those cities is incredible industry and incredible talent. And you're just like, oh my gosh, why don't we all know all of this about all these countries that nearly every country has amazing people doing amazing things. And it's such an obvious thing to sort of yearn for and to think about. I never imagined, and this is my bias, I never imagined Brazil to be such a strong advertising country, so especially planning wise. I don't know where that comes from. Is that a cultural thing? But it'd be interesting to know why. I've heard theories. So first of all, a lot of design students and very visual culture. And then there are books that try to explain contemporary Brazilian culture because it's this interesting mix of indigenous spiritual beliefs mixed with European spiritual beliefs mixed with, I'll call it a diaspora. Brazil had a lot of slaves. It brought in a lot of people from Africa, right? And so all of that merges in a country that is physically overwhelming, just like, oh my gosh, like spectacular and so much diversity of nature. That, From what I've read in a book, that sort of affects the people a little bit, very expressive as well. But then, yeah, planning culture, I, I don't know. Wherever I go, everyone apologizes for their planning culture. So in Brazil, from what I understand, a lot of the media companies own the agencies. So it's a little bit different to other parts of the world. That kind of conglomerate situation, probably Japan has a bit of that. South Korea definitely has that. But what happens there is that the media companies kind of get together and then work out the briefs and then the money gets to go to the creative agencies. And it's not like that everywhere in the same way. So that affects some of the planning. Not answering the question very directly, but yes, it is pretty powerful. It's a big country as well, big creative country. Did you grow up in Guatemala? No, I grew up in Malawi, Southern Africa. My dad's work, he works in development for USAID. So we moved around quite a bit. But when we landed in Albania, I went to boarding school in the UK. And yeah, that's where I finished high school. And then I went off to college. Globetrotter. What are some of the, I don't know, either challenges or interesting ways in which planning might happen in Guatemala that are unique to Guatemala? And I can give you some examples to get you thinking. So sometimes in countries that have a lot of multinational brands, the planner might be more involved with localization of a global brand idea, for example. They might not get a lot of elbow room to come up with something from scratch. Also, sometimes in those markets, the clients aren't necessarily used to account planners or they're not used to a more provocative approach to creativity because they're often rolling out campaigns made elsewhere. I don't know if that's the case in Guatemala or really to what degree it's the case in Guatemala. So I have to agree with you that does happen. In fact, the first three briefs I worked on were translating work from another country. I'll speak about one. 
Bayer Pharmaceutical. It was a brief about a program they have called Heartbeats. And Heartbeats is supposed to help the blue collar worker really take care of themselves, especially their heart health, because statistics say they're most they're they're at high risk. And so how do we bring that to Guatemala? Well, the blue collar worker in Guatemala is very different from the blue collar worker in US. That does happen sometimes where we have to translate briefs like that and just bring it home. How are they different? The way that they're different is maybe you can argue that both live on a day-to-day basis. It can't be more true than here. People live on a day-to-day basis. So there's no time to plan for the future. I was out working in the field and tonight I'm going to go drink some beer with my friends. That's as far as you think ahead. So we were like, who are you going to listen to? You live in an environment where you're around other friends that are a lot like you, right? I don't care about this. Life is short. Let me enjoy my life right now. I'm going to go drink beer. I'm going to go do this. And so we said, who can influence them? So we eventually thought, well, the only influencer that really exists in their life is their family. So the idea was, let's use them as an ally to tell them, to tell them, their family members, hey, take care of your family member, your worker. You're essentially saying this group of people lives one day at a time. Correct. Yeah. I want to point this out because I've seen the phrase blue collar a few times. It's obviously a very old piece of language. Sometimes we've got to be a little bit careful with things like blue collar, white collar, when we start to introduce words that are about class. Maybe we can move beyond that in the future. And I'm not sort of criticizing what you said or how you brought it in. It's just I've seen it recently. I'm like, hang on. There's a risk that the strategist in using class-like language to describe populations does so in a way where they will not feel empathy for those people or represent them well back in their research because the class-like language makes the planner feel separate from the group of people. I don't know if that made sense. I totally understand that. Sometimes we might feel that we're reporting on them, you know, like, oh, I'm analyzing them in a way that as opposed to, hey, you know, spend time with them and here's what I felt and here's what I want to represent about my time spent with them. Actually, can I ask a quick question about that? It has to do with the Vivitrol brief, but I personally think that sometimes you have to find your truth in the brief. I don't know what you think about that, whether human out bringing it back to you is necessary or that's a bit dangerous? I think you have to hold two ideas in your head simultaneously. One is, how do I feel about this? Have I had issues with Vivitrol with substance abuse or alcohol? Have I seen family or friends go through it? How do I feel about it? And then the second concept to hold in your head is, the brief's not about me. You want to channel and use everything that you've gone through, everything that you've read, experienced, seen. It's all valid raw material, but it's not about me. And I think younger planners can risk making things about them. I see this a lot in some of the fancy New York places. I walk around and people are like, I wouldn't do that. And it's like, hey, we're selling people beer in rural Pennsylvania. Are you from rural Pennsylvania? No. So your opinion about them and whether you would do that doesn't matter. It's those two ideas. How do I feel? What have I learned about the world as an individual? But also it's not about me and I need to make sure that I do research and represent that back. Fair question. How long have you been a planner? 11 months. Yeah. Why did you become one? How did you become one? Long story, but I want to make it short. I was in chemistry. There was no creative outlet for me and I felt like I had this creative side. So I went to study at Syracuse uh, Advertising and I thought the little I knew, I was like, I want to be Don Draper. Everybody wants to be Don Draper. and my professor, Kevin O'Neill, he's like, let me see your portfolio then. And I was like, yeah, I have a portfolio. So I went home, I made one. And he looked at it and he's like, this isn't good enough. Like, are you serious? And I was like, no. So I was looking for something and I found the thing that 
Personally, I thought I was good at, I think having lived in many different countries made me hyper aware of people and how they felt. And so I was like, I like this. I think I could be really good at this. And yeah, kind of chose it that way. All right, Rodolfo, let's go through this Vivid Troll brief. The brief as I gave it to you was there's a drug called Vivitrol. What it claims to do, this is not an ad for Vivitrol, by the way, and I might get the science incorrect, but we're going to try. What I believe it claims to do is to turn down the opioid receptors in the brain. That's a needle in the butt cheek once a month, I believe. There are other similar formats with the active ingredient. I think one is called naltrexone, and it's a pill that you can take every day. People use it to get off opioids, which is a massive issue in the States. I think I read a headline yesterday that something like a million people have died from opioid overdose, I think since the pandemic. It's a lot of people. Okay, It's a, it's a massive issue. And so these drugs can, I believe, help reduce cravings. And then if the person takes the substance, it will turn down the sense of reward that they get. So I believe the endorphins will rush and then we can keep chasing that rush by taking more of a substance and Vivitrol, Naltrexone and other drugs like it will turn it down. With Vivitrol, I gave you rather than the opioid user, forgive me for using that ugly word, the opioid user, I was talking about the alcohol user and, and specifically people who are heavy drinkers, frequent heavy drinkers who may not think that they've really got a problem, they probably know, but they don't see themselves as being quote unquote alcoholics. This kind of person, their behavior is a drink or two can quickly turn into eight, nine, or 10. And if you've worked in advertising, chances are maybe you are that person, or you spent time with that person, or you were that person for a phase of your life. So the brief was about how do you get someone who frequently drinks a lot, someone who is a frequent binge drinker, to consider something like Vivitrol or to take some course of action to reduce the amount of alcohol that they consume. Rodolfo has 10 slides that he's going to take us through and we'll pause and discuss them as we go through them. Before we get into that, how did you approach this brief? When I first started this brief, I thought this is going to be very, very difficult. I think I chose it more for the challenge, but I didn't know where to start looking because I don't really have experience in this. So I looked to the 12 Steps program because I thought the 12 Steps was made by a group of, of alcoholics. Sorry, I know that's not the correct term. I think that correct term is alcohol disorder. It's a bit of a problematic word for a lot of people. I think it gets in the way because it's like, I'm not an alcoholic, but it doesn't have to be bad. And by the way, if you're listening to this and you've had substance usage challenges or you've had a friend or family member have them, lost someone, we want to be sensitive to it, but we're also going to talk relatively directly about these things. All right. So what are you going to say? In the 12-step program, the first step is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. And that really resonated with me because I thought when they made these steps, they had a very clear thought that we are powerless over alcohol. We got to the point where we had no power. And that's really where I began. Then I kind of like was trying to think of the things that people would say, standing on the outside looking in. What would people say? They'd say, oh, why can't you stop? Surely maybe you just need some help to stop. And these things also came back to stopping and helping kind of insinuates that you can stop and help. And a lot of the research says that's not necessarily true. The research coming through about how some therapeutic approaches to psychedelics can help with some substance use issues and some mental health challenges, some, okay? I read the research about it. It's super interesting. But apparently, the 12 steps was also going to have a 13th step around psychedelic usage. So I wanted to point that out. The other thing I want to point out is that, yes, historically speaking, the, one of the main narratives with people who are unable to control their usage of 
drugs and alcohol is you're broken. Why don't you have the willpower to get over this? Fix yourself. In the US, that comes very much from the Puritan religious tradition, which was all about being noble, working hard so you could get a place in heaven. And if you weren't noble, if you were broken, for some people it meant that God had made that decision. I'm not religious and I'm not being negative about religion. I'm just trying to report about things because some of these things influence us regardless of religion and possibly even regardless of whether you're in the US. All right, Rodolfo, what's the problem? Do you want to read this out? Yes. So the problem is not what you think. Throughout our entire lives, we have been taught that we have the power to solve our own problems. For years, your mother, your father, your grandfather, they've all bestowed on you the wisdom that looking outside for solutions to internal problems is futile. When we are talking about alcoholism, however, this couldn't be further from the truth. We've just done slide two and slide three. Slide three says, when we are talking about alcoholism, this couldn't be further from the truth. Even this is a 10-slide presentation, including the title slide. That sentence, when we are talking about alcoholism, this couldn't be further from the truth. It sets up a bit of intrigue, or what I've heard referred to as a curiosity gap, which Rodolfo will now fill. Slide four. Looking to solve your alcoholism with sheer willpower is the futile exercise here. The problem we face as alcoholics is that we are human. The issue isn't you, like you've been taught your entire life. The issue is the chemistry inside you. And like hearing your father's voice inside your head saying, you can do this, you got this. Truth is, you can't, you don't. Interesting. What you're setting up here is that willpower doesn't work, right? Exactly. Based on? Based on the science. That in fact, alcoholism changes your brain chemistry and doesn't allow you to overcome the addiction. I think anyone who's interested in humans, which is probably anyone listening to this, go to YouTube and look up a few talks that go into the brain and addiction, especially by well-known academics or people in public health. It's so interesting. Basically, from a young age, if you're a heavy drinker from a young age, which is very common in some of our cultures, such as Australia and England and Sweden and Norway and Germany, uh, South Korea, Russia, apparently in Russia, by the way, men die 10 years younger because there's so much consumption, heavy consumption of vodka. But the neural pathways, the pathways in the brain from a very young age start to be a little bit alcohol wetted. As I see this language, I'm like, personally, I don't think willpower is impossible. It will work for some people, but I see the fight that you're picking. You're picking a fight with people who say it's only about willpower or people who want to make some kind of change, but are just like, I don't have the willpower. I see the fight that you're picking. Next slide. That is the problem with talking about Vivitrol as an aid for you to solve your alcohol problems. It insinuates that somehow you are capable of making an impact on the problem. You're not. Well, part of me is like, what if I can? What if I can? I see where you're going as well. A little heightened language insinuates, etc. But each slide, you're building the tension and you're being relatively extreme for this topic. And soon you're going to start to resolve the tension, such as on the next slide, our strategy. Our strategy is grounded in the truth, that this isn't a problem you can solve because it isn't one that you even have the tools for. You don't speak the same language. It would be like talking to your brain through bulletproof glass. The real problem here, the problem that is keeping you from finding a solution, is the belief that you can solve a chemical problem with sheer willpower. Well, we're starting to reframe the problem from being one of willpower can get you through it. I don't have willpower, therefore I'm not going to change that loop, right? Really nice visual metaphor here. It would be like talking to your brain through bulletproof glass. 
imagine presenting this and maybe you put your clients behind bulletproof glass somewhere and you try to present to them and then somehow you remove the bulletproof glass and you can say that's what many people who abuse alcohol feel like when they're trying to talk some sense into their brain when they know they're getting carried away but they just can't reel it back in continue we know that regardless of what you want your body goes into autopilot when alcohol is involved. Yep. I've watched a bunch of interviews with people you know, around this topic and they'll often say, yeah, that first drink uh, really quickly turned into an eighth drink. You know, and look, if you've been out in London because of the, the drinking laws there and also because of, isn't there, wasn't there a gin century where so much of London was drunk so much at the time and also many parts of the world, but especially, I guess, Western Europe, Australia, people often drank more alcohol than water because water wasn't safe, et cetera, et cetera. Forgive me if I'm not historically accurate. I'm trying to make a dramatic point. We can easily slip from one to eight depending on our brain chemistry. And if you're not like this, congratulations, but you might be with someone who can't help it, right? Well, who mostly can't help it. So autopilot, nice visual metaphor here. Continue. Vivitrol is here to say that you can stop fighting with willpower alone. Because only chemistry can solve chemistry. So what you're saying here is you've, you've found a little, little bit of nuance. So it's not a fight only against willpower. But it's like, hey, willpower alone might not work for everyone. Because only chemistry can solve chemistry. Okay, continue. We want to show how trying to will yourself free of alcohol is impossible. Because you don't speak the right language. Vivitrol does. Very cool. If you spend your days trying to get into people's heads, but are interested in strategy classes, books, and events that get into your head, visit sweathead.com. You can pick up the Kickstarter-funded book, Strategy Is Your Words, by me. Find out about our monthly membership, online classes, and the company training that we do. Yes, this was an ad, a gentle, gentle ad. Back to the interview. On the last slide, you've got the four points, which is a little framework that I like to use. Use your, whatever framework you want to use, use it, okay? It's okay. Don't be dogmatic with this stuff. The four points as the problem at the top, the problem being the perceptual issue, why someone's not buying something, why someone's not doing something, the obstacle or the barrier in their way. What did you write for that as a summary of what you just went through? Believing that I can solve a chemical problem with pure willpower. Okay. That's yep. the problem. So you wrote it in the first person, which is totally fine. So the problem there is that people think that they have to solve a chemical problem with willpower, which assumes that they realize it's a chemical problem, but essentially. I think the problem there is I don't have the willpower to do it, okay? Insight, the way I define it, unspoken human truth that sheds new light on the problem. I would use the word insight once on a brief, and I know the public discourse out there is like, you don't need an insight. Fine. The unlock, whatever you want to call it, okay? There's going to be some kind of leap and some kind of revelation, some kind of epiphany. It doesn't have to be ridiculously profound about all of human existence. It could be about how someone uses toilet paper. I like to use the word. And I have read research about how emotional insights tend to lead to more effective work. And if the strategist doesn't do it, guess who's going to do it? If you work with a creative team, they're going to do the insight, all right? And maybe they're going to do it anyway if they don't like your insight. So we have a problem with willpower. I don't have willpower to do it. Insight here, what, what have you written? Regardless of what I want, my body goes into autopilot when alcohol is involved. Yeah. So problem and insight here are building the tension. The insight could start to relieve it, but I feel like as soon as we're trying to get out of difficult truth, we're really in problem-solving mode, which would get us closer to strategy or a campaign idea, right? But the problem and the insight for me are always difficult, a bit dangerous, a bit daring, uncomfortable truths, but truths nonetheless, and truths that we could argue for with evidence, okay? And I've seen enough research into this particular space, enough interviews where we could line 
20 slides up in the next hour to make the point about this problem and this insight. So they hold for me. I like it. All right. Advantage, which is usually about the brand. Only chemistry solves chemistry. We would probably use the brand Vivitrol in that sentence somehow, just to make sure that the advantage is about the brand. And again, I will acknowledge that in my 20s, we did focus a lot on the phrase unique and motivating. What makes your brand unique and motivating to people? However, a lot of marketing science would say that what's unique and motivating about your brand, what makes it different or differentiation matters less than being distinct, standing out or distinctiveness. So what that means is perhaps you could communicate something that's relatively general that a competitor could also communicate, but you might do it with an incredible logo and sounds and distinctive brand assets, right? Smells, if you have a physical location, like branded smells, that's a thing. Uh, Mascots, characters, jingles, all that sort of stuff. But I still like thinking about what would make this thing unique and motivating. It's just a, a part of critical thinking. I'm not saying this is the scientific way to build a brand, okay? Chemistry solves chemistry. Your strategy statement? Show how trying to will yourself free of alcohol is impossible because you don't speak the right language. Vivitrol does. Very cool. There's a little bit of mixed language here, isn't there? You've got the problem, believing that I can solve a chemical problem with pure willpower. That's the reason that I'm not doing something. I'd probably rewrite that a little bit, even using that exact language. Like, I have to have willpower to solve this problem. Uh, And then the advantage only chemistry solves chemistry. So using the word solve a couple of times. In the insight, you've got regardless of what I want, my body goes into autopilot when alcohol is involved. So we have the metaphor or the theme of being a robot, autopilot. But then the strategy talks about the concept of language speaking. And we remember the metaphor you mentioned earlier that it's like talking through bulletproof glass for a person to talk to their brain when their brain has other ideas about what's going to happen with the substance in front of them. So your strategies show how trying to will yourself free of alcohol is impossible because you don't speak the right language. Vivitrol does. So I would probably edit this to make sure that we have one clear theme. It might be around language. Do you have a point of view on the, the theme that you would use to rewrite this? Yeah, I didn't want to focus too much on language in case that pigeonholed creative team. But um, I think it is worth having that conversation that that example helps you understand what it is. So I think I'd write two briefs. I do one that includes language at the beginning, all the way through to the end. And then another one that that doesn't try to find a, a way to communicate it without using those words. Let's talk in five years. The idea that you're going to pigeonhole a creative team, two things. It's a reasonable thing to think about, but all briefs will do that. The thing is, you spoke about speaking to the creative team, which is good. No creative team wants to be surprised by a brief that sucks or that doesn't make sense. You need to accept that the creative brief will have constraints, and for some people, that will feel like a pigeonhole. For others, the constraints will feel awesome and amazing. Yeah, I could work with that. Great. And the only way to know that is by talking to the team you're working with and actually calibrating on how literal and linear versus how lateral or unexpected they want the creative brief to be. Yeah, I should also mention that somebody during the accelerator course asked me, where'd your inspiration come from? And I had other people ask me that because I think there's a part where I say the problem with us as alcoholics, it sounds like I'm including myself. And I took that as the greatest compliment because I was thinking if they can think that I know the problem well enough because I included myself, that's really great. But the truth is I found the powerlessness part of it And that was something I could resonate with because 
part of being human is also experiencing powerlessness, right? So once I went down that route, it was kind of easy after that. From a technical writing point of view, and, and these concepts dealt with in books like, I think, On Writing Well by William Sisner, is you need to pick a person in which to write. So if you're going to write in the first person, write the whole thing in the first person. If you're going to write in the third person, as in they, first person being I, me, third person being he, she, they, them, write it entirely in the third person. Or if you're going to write it in the second person, you, singular and plural in English, same word, different different languages, you stick to that. And that particular paragraph, you used we and I and you, I think. And so you might rewrite it, the whole thing, just to make sure it's in the one person. Are there any other thoughts that you've got about this particular 10-slide piece of thinking? Anything else that you might have changed or done differently? I didn't lead with the problem so much at the beginning. The chemistry only solves chemistry chemistry was the kind of the beginning. But yeah, I didn't try to structure the problem first, which is something that I think I got a lot out of the four points is if your problem is structured in a way that inspires you, the rest is so easy. And so the reason that I like the four points, first of all, it focuses on the problem in the way that the four C's, consumer truth category or competitive truth, cultural truth, company truth can sort of reach a problem. But I found that when I used the four C's or five C's with the fifth C being channel or communications truth, that often I was trying to force a connection to the problem. But the four points, it sets up the points of a story. So if I was to take your four points, slide one, willpower, it's big on the screen. Today, I'm going to talk to you about willpower. We got it wrong. Not just us. For a century, we got it wrong. And currently there are people who need help who've got it wrong, right? Then we'd move into the next chapter of the story. And then eventually we'd move into chemistry can speak to chemistry or something like that. And I would definitely use that visual metaphor of talking through bulletproof glass. You know, that's beautiful. And physically bring it to life. Maybe you present to a client with no slides, but you literally sit behind bulletproof glass yourself or something to demonstrate the points. And I think that would be especially powerful if your strategy had something to do with language or speaking, which can be a little bit of a strategist trope. You know, let's say you work on a brand that is quite technical. Let's say it's uh, fixing cars. And an obvious strategy could be that this company speaks mechanics or speaks auto or speaks cars. Like it's a little bit of a common trope. But I feel like where you're going, because there's rawness and honesty there, that you could probably get somewhere that's worth continuing with. Did you speak to any creative teams about this thinking? I haven't. But do you remember that I, I said that I don't know if I'd be comfortable presenting this to the client? And you said, no, you have to present it like this. Do you think if I were to change it and tone it down, it, it would fall apart? Because you still haven't sharpened it. You need to sharpen it even more. Without being reckless, okay, the way to manage some of the provocative desires and yearning that I have from everybody's minds is to play games with it. So you might actually do the Goldilocks gambit. And that Goldilocks gambit just means you've got porridge that's you know too cold, too hot, just right. You go in with threes. And what you could do is go, look, I've got three directions that I want to share with you today. And maybe you've just got three big posters and the posters have some kind of strategy framework on it, each three different ones perhaps, right? And just a couple of images that bring them to life strategically, not creatively, strategically. And you're like, look, one of these, I've just let it rip. It's just going to be raw. And then there are two others that will feel more familiar to everybody here. You'll feel more comfortable with them. It needs to be sensitive to the audience and the people, right? But I'd be happy to see the extreme thinking. And as long as it's not brutally insensitive to the audience, because that's that's just not going to work. 
then two other directions could be a way that you like his stuff that's more conventional that you might like. But as a group, we're actually aligned with this first one. If you are actually aligned on that. Do you think it's fair to eliminate other things? My intention with this brief was to eliminate the thought that a helping hand can help in this situation, right? That image of picking yourself up. I wanted to eliminate that because it wasn't the truth. Yeah. Depends where it's what role that sentence is playing. It's a bit of an easy, convenient thing. You know, helping hand will help you. Yeah, cool. Okay. We've lost the truth there. And the truth is that there might be a person who wants to change, but their brain is out of control. So I want to keep it there. I want to keep it raw. Okay. It also depends on the type of work you expect out of it, but we want to keep it raw and avoid the cliches. It would be super interesting if you could get feedback from creative teams about how they would work with this if they would, if it's too much of an idea or it's not clear enough. And maybe even in Guatemala, I'm sure Vivatrol's there or something similar is there. It'd be interesting to get client feedback to this too, even though they're probably not your client, just to see. That'd be amazing. I have one more question, actually. When we talk about the business objective, I think a lot of the times we get briefs where the business objective is there and not the communications objective. How do you fit that into the problem? Or do you just set that aside and go, if the context is advertising, I'm looking for the perceptual problem, the problem that advertising could address to help achieve the business goal or to help address the business issue. I do think sometimes we can take the business issue and even like a communications issue a little too seriously, like a little too intellectual. What are we talking about here? Well, the reason we're not selling more is because dot, 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 people hate the CEO. Okay. You know, like plain talk at some point is going to have to pop out. But we do a whole song and dance and a pantomime and a carnival procession of song and dance pantomimes down the street, all like fiddling around serious business stuff. It's important. The only reason that I'm slightly mocking it is because I feel that the people who take all that stuff seriously don't take the work we all do seriously enough. And so I'm being a little bit mean and I don't like being mean. Do you have any other reflections about the work that you did and how it might affect the work that you're currently doing? We actually adopted the four points now. Uh, we made a new structure for our planning. It's got research, digital strategy, and then we have the four points to the right. So it's definitely changed it because it's allowed me to focus on the problem and just you know walk through that way. Before we had, you probably know the BBDO structure. It was like you know the consumer, cultural, or brand truth, and the strategic push. Right. That something my my boss pointed out was when we talk about strategic push, sometimes our clients are don't want to admit they don't know what we're talking about. They're like, what is a strategic push? So we've changed it to the strategy, right? Another issue like I've been battling a bit with is we want to be creative. I think that's something we talked a lot about and I thought was a bit of a taboo. Like it's not allowed for us to be too creative, especially when I'm writing the strategy statement. You can't help but put words that bring it to life, especially for you. You hope you can inspire people. But there have been times I've gotten in a bit of trouble where they're like, no, you're telling me the idea. You're, you're trying to tell me what to do. What we are talking about when we talk about strategy, which is largely in the context of uh, advertising, communications, marketing, strategy is a creative act. Why? Creativity brings topics together in new ways. Bringing topics together in new ways creates new meaning. New meaning in the world creates new value. New meaning and new value help us see ourselves in the world differently. If a strategist is not doing that, they're just reporting, which is fine. You're a researcher, you're a reporter, and you run workshops and you manage people. That's okay. But at some point, you might also be more of a bureaucrat than a strategist, especially in corporate America. 
So that's the first set of, I'll call it logic, to help address this sort of tension. The second is that the ideas of a strategist, I believe, need to be closer to the ideas of a nonfiction writer. All good nonfiction, pick up a book that's nonfiction, read an essay, maybe even a great teacher on TikTok, they will use sentences that combine topics in novel ways that help you see and understand a topic in a way where you're like, oh, I totally get that now, okay? The role of the strategist is not to do what the creative department does if you work with a creative department. That would just suck. You know, like, hey, I've got the brief. Yeah, the proposition, single-minded proposition is actually a hashtag or it's a campaign idea or it's a slogan. No, that's not what we want to do. But clear nonfiction writing of ideas is, is really where the strategist needs to be. And then the fourth part of this, I mentioned this earlier, is the need to calibrate possibly with each team or each individual differently, where one team might want you to give them language that I wouldn't put on a creative brief, you know, like high performance tires for a car. I wouldn't use that. It's not interesting to me. There's nothing insightful about it. Some teams might want you to do that because really they want to come up with the insight and they find their heroism somewhere. Others might be happy with a strategy statement that is more of an unexpected lateral thought. The only way to work through this is by talking about it with people, right? But we don't want to undermine the creative department. They're just not going to want to work with us. You know, and they're probably going to be better at that than us if we're hiring correctly. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's probably true. Yeah. yeah. One time I was visiting, actually, I won't say what agency in New York, but I realized that the creatives were uh, the strategists. They work by themselves. And when we were in the accelerator course, I realized a lot of people we're used to working by themselves. I haven't. We work in a team all the time. And there's something nice about saying things and people going, that's a bad idea. And then somebody goes, oh my God, that's an amazing idea. Do you think that as strategists, we should work in teams or is there also a benefit to working by yourself? It's both. I'm always going to avoid the word <laughs> should, okay? But okay. it's good to have spirit animals around. The challenge is the business model. Strategists and planners, it's hard to afford two of them because you're already paying for a creative team or part of a creative team. And agencies make most money from the, probably from the account management team and from their administrative, like they have to pay. Agencies these days, especially holding companies, are extremely heavy with administrative roles. I'm not saying account management is an administrative role, but the percentage of people who actually do the research, come up with the strategies, come up with the ideas is a minority in most holding agencies. Agencies typically make money through head hours. Head hours can be most generated in the account team. Also, they have to wrangle and manage pretty complex things, but account teams tend to be way bigger than anything else. And so the idea of having multiple planners on a project working in pairs is beautiful, you know, like pair programming and development. It's an idea that people have talked about for years and on the internet, someone will just rediscover it every year. Wouldn't it be great if planners worked in pairs? Yeah, okay, people have talked about that for a while. It's just hard, it's hard to do. Some planners are going to be a bit more introverted and they're going to need some time away. Most planners, even the we've done research as well with Sweathead, most planners, like they want to do thinking as a team sport, but they also want time away to think. I understand, yeah. All right. Rodolfo, if people would like to find you on the internet, where's the best place to look? Probably LinkedIn. Rodolfo A. Estrada. Andres Estrada. That's the best place to look. Or you can email me. Rodolfo A. Estrada at gmail.com. Thank you. So you're 11 months into planning, right? And you're already finding a voice, which is great. 
Because sometimes people are at 10, 15 years in, they do a bit of strategy work, but maybe they're more an account manager who does strategy work and they struggle to find their voice. And also they're probably more anxious about pleasing a client. So they take fewer risks. There's a voice emerging here. The visual metaphor that comes to mind when I see work like this, it's like a soprano just holding this clear falsetto note, just like this, oh, for like two minutes. I'm like, oh my God, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And I love that energy. It feels a bit primal. Sorry for my bad singing just then. It feels primal. And so I'm really curious to see how you go. And and hopefully the people you get to work with in the early stages of your career will encourage you to take risks, to be disobedient and to be mischievous, to roughen you up, not to round off any rough edges. Right. So I wish that upon you. For those of you who are listening to this, there's an, an earlier episode with Taylor Marks where we talk about another brief for Party City. And it's interesting, just in case you're listening to this, Taylor, a lot of people that I'm working with have listened to that episode and they were so intimidated by the thinking that they refused to do the Party City brief as we did the accelerator that we've just done. Rodolfo, thank you so much for joining me on Sweathead today. And thank you also for being a part of the accelerator. I appreciate it and look forward to the next few years of your career. No, thank you so much for having me. Peace. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sweathead. If it's your first time here, please subscribe. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend or leave a kind rating. For more information about our strategy classes, events, and books, visit www.sweathead.com. And yes, you can find us on Instagram at, at Sweathead.